0: Hi, this is uh, John Green, and I'm going to give you an update on the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus and uh, special emphasis on oncology patients. Um, This is what the virus looks like. It's called coronavirus because it looks like a crown, as you can see there. Let me ask a bunch of questions, and I'll try to answer them with some uh, information that'll be helpful to you. What is our biggest obstacle with COVID-19? The answer is fear. Here's an example of an article where the mother is feeling the head of the child and is fearful that he has coronavirus. Uh, This was an article on the facts versus fears, five things to help you understand your risks so you can understand what you're dealing with because misunderstanding leads to further fear. Here's another one that says, coronavirus fact fiction and our fear mongering. So what's the best way to not be fearful of COVID-19? Number one is knowledge. The more you learn about what COVID-19 is, what its strengths are, weaknesses, what it's like, what it's not like, the less fearful you will be. Number two, preparation. Are you ready for your first case of COVID-19? And as I was walking over, we just had our first case of COVID 19. And so, are the team ready after reading all about this? And are you ready? That's the next question. The third thing is teamwork. Look out for each other, care for your patients as you would yourself and family. So, we're going to get together with us through this epidemic, pandemic as a team. I like this. Uh, verse that says, perfect love cast out all fear. So as we work together in unity and uh, working in love, the fear of this thing will subside because we care more about each other than we care about the virus itself. So what countries have been affected the most by COVID-19? Well, if you look at the latest maps, they have cases rising uh, up to 140 something thousand. And you could see that china and iran and italy are very heavily infected with the virus and even the united states is in a growing mode Uh, another one looks at covid 19 in a different mode and you can see the different color regions on where it's the most prominent and then of course if you go to the john hopkins map you can get the latest numbers as fast as possible as they're coming in and where the hot spots are listed per country. So, what states in the U.S. are the most affected by COVID-19? Well, uh, Washington State, California, New York, and Florida, where I'm at, is a growing concern right now. So, you could see again the red states there, where there's the biggest concern of COVID-19, and you can see Texas is also there as well as Oregon in illinois where there's large cities Uh, here's another view of it looking at it from around the whole united states and even just the state of florida where there's some hot spots if you look at the cases uh, back in march 8th you could see that the vast majority of them were uh, diagnosed and came in from travel and some recovered most recovered that have been on the diamond princess and in black if the ones that have passed away so how uh were, were these transmitted you could see travel related was most important and then person to person and then those people under investigation uh are still unknown here's the list of all the states and the numbers which are changing daily and the top states uh, as you can see are new york washington california massachusetts texas georgia and florida so where did covid19 come from well uh, most people feel that a bat has the closest genetic match to covid19 in humans and there may have been an intermediate host which uh, could be the scaly ant eater which has a very close genomic match as well. Some people say it goes back as far as snakes, but uh, that's still being debated on where the animal source is. Well, we know Wuhan, China has a uh, market there where there's a lot of live animals together and the animals are kept alive until they're uh, butchered, sold, eaten and here's what some of those the last slide was frogs this is the fish area this is a civet cat which was thought to be key for the SARS uh, coronavirus and of course the avian influenza's and all the chickens that are kept there so this is all mingled together in one area as you can see that has since been uh, closed So where did it come from? We think uh, there's a likely intermediate host between bats and humans. The scaly anteater pangolin uh, possibly was the intermediate there. And then there was recombination of genes between the bat, pangolin, and then to humans. And this is what a pangolin or scaly anteater would look like. So why has COVID-19 caused so much fear? Well, when you see pictures like that, uh, this engenders great fear of a very contagious illness and very sick people having problems breathing that's quite contagious. So let me talk to you about fear and the psychology of pandemics from an article that was published recently. It says masks were the first to go, then hand sanitizers, and now the novel coronavirus panic buyers are snatching up toilet paper. So why do people do that? Five reasons. People resort to extremes when they hear conflicting messages. So the novel coronavirus scares people because it's new. There's a lot about it that's still unknown. And when people hear conflicting messages about the risk it poses and how serious they should prepare for it, they tend to resort to the extreme. Two, reacting to the lack of a clear direction. Extreme scenarios are predicted. There's mixed messages are broadcast to people. And people are left to guess at the probability of needing extra toilet paper sooner rather than later. Three, panic buying begets panic buying. People who are social creatures look to each other for cues on what is safe, what is dangerous. And when you see someone in a store buying large amounts of toilet paper, the contagion effect takes over. And of course, social media is a huge player in the fear mongering number four it's a natural to want to over prepare so the novel coronavirus is a sort of uh, we're going into a survivalist psychology where we must live as much as possible at home therefore we have to stock up on essentials and that certainly includes toilet paper after all if we run out of toilet paper what do we replace it with number five that allows some people to feel a sense of control in a pandemic that seems totally out of control So people are stocking up on supplies like toilet paper and other things, thinking about their sales, their family and the need that they need to prepare. They're not thinking about, what about healthcare workers needing masks? What about sick people or even regular folks who might run out of toilet paper sometime soon? It's all a wave of anticipatory anxiety, Taylor, the author of the article said, because people become anxious ahead of the actual infection. They haven't thought through the bigger picture, like what are the consequences of stockpiling toilet paper. But people only act that way out of fear. By preparing, even by purchasing toilet paper, returns a sense of control, what seems like a helpless situation. So who's taking advantage of the fear of COVID-19 outbreak? Well, there's all kinds of scams now that we're all being warned of, and so there's people out there trying to get your protected information and steal whatever they can from you so beware of criminals pretending to be various organizations asking for information from you don't do it unless you know it's a reliable source so how does the economics of the covid 19 outbreak affect the medical community well for example there's a supply and chain response plan uh, the news headline today was China may stop sending some of the important medications we're going to be using to treat uh, COVID-19 because they, are, they fear that the United States gave the, China the COVID-19. Another uh, example is uh, Foley catheters used for uh, people who can't urinate without assistance are now on shortage and other things may soon follow. So what can we learn from other countries' response to COVID-19? Well, let's look at Germany and Italy. So Germany, as of Monday, had 1,175 cases, zero deaths, 82 million, whereas Italy had a population of 59 million, 9,200 cases, 463 deaths. Big difference. Why is that? France population 67 million 30 deaths Spain 46.7 million people lost 26 people US back then encountered 600 cases with 22 fatalities so what is it about Germany well some people feel Germany's working hard to retrace the steps of people who contracted the virus contact tracing their method of tracking the infection chains are helping in the reduction They quickly canceled all events, more than a thousand participants, and now even stricter. And Germany's actions may be harsher and more stringent than Northern Italy where the rising death toll is occurring. On the other hand, Italy has the oldest population in the world who are the most vulnerable of getting COVID-19 and getting serious illness and dying. The average age of those who died in Italy was 81. The majority are suffering from other health problems also keep in mind italy is the european nation with the greatest number of air connection connections with china the outbreak in italy is evolving longer than other places in europe therefore more patients have completed their final outcome and have died or been discharged other countries are still early in the epidemic and may ultimately begin experiencing deaths in the coming days and weeks today's news says that the first case that entered Italy may actually have come from China um, come from Germany, which then came from China. So uh, those are all debatable issues. Should you be more stringent like Germany or what? would you be more concerned about uh, hindering people's freedoms? So another big question is, will warm weather slow down the coronavirus now that we're heading towards spring, summer? what do the experts think well one kind of uh, a group tends to think that the coronavirus which is obviously one of the cold viruses is causing uh these illnesses and they don't think seasonality will play a role it will run its course no matter what others say that when approach of warm weather because the humidity, the water in the air, the heat, the, the coronavirus is not as easily suspended in the air, transmitted like it is in dry, cold air. So they believe that the cases will be tapering off. And then when they look at the SARS coronavirus outbreak from 2003, comparing that, uh, they said that, well, that virus was no longer a threat now that it was in the summertime back then. Uh, Nichols, who was an expert, predicted that the spread of virus will be a- fading with the arrival of spring. And one of the Chinese epidemiologists, uh, Zong Nanshan, believes the spread will begin to wane in April as it heats up. And he based his prediction on mathematical model- modeling and government action. And he was a key player in the 2003 SARS epidemic. So will the weather affect it? Possibly it will slow down because of weather. Others say weather will have no effect on it. It will continue to run its course regardless of climate. Now, here's what everyone does agree with for the most part is we need to be thinking of how to flatten the curve. So China is like the cases that occurred and went a very high numbers, very fast, and uh, you had a very high peak. And then when they realized what they were dealing with they got more protective on uh, preventing spread with appropriate personal protective equipment and restricting travel and uh, people contacting people so if you become more protective like germany then you will flatten the curve which is what everyone is shooting for So how contagious or transmissible is COVID-19? Well, we know it spreads person to person, close contact, droplet is the key versus small aerosol. Six feet away, uh, you would produce uh, droplets that could infect someone else further away, less likely to uh, be infected because the droplets fall to the ground. Touching contaminated surfaces, fomites, then touching your eyes, nose, mouth, uh, that's Another possibility, most people feel it's not the major driver, and the virus does not last long on surfaces, but we'll talk about that briefly soon. Uh, people are also thought to be most contagious when they're symptomatic, even though we know it can spread when they're asymptomatic, showing no symptoms, but it's the most contagious when they're sickest. and the. The most important transmission is going to be not from diarrhea, GI source, even though the virus can be found in the stool, uh, and likely not from fomites, but from respiratory airborne droplet spread. So you can see that if you look at coronaviruses, they can live up to five, seven days on cardboard, uh, sometimes steel, wood. But if you look at some of the copper or uh silver aluminum they don't live but a few hours covid transmissibility so the basic reproductive number r0 means that if it's one that means you will spread it to one other person and so when you're looking at an epidemic you like to have the number less than one and then you know the infection will taper off and when it's over one you have potential for the epidemic to continue with sustained transmission. So the efficiency of transmission of any virus is important to understand how to contain it and mitigate it. So the RO value for COVID-19 is thought to be about 2.2. So one person will infect 2.2 other people or two people more or less. When it gets below one, then maybe the outbreak will slow down. Other concerns is there's high titers in the oropharynx and people can be spreading it uh, sometimes with minimal symptoms, which is not helping that number. So given the efficiency of transmission, COVID is getting a foothold in the United States. Community spread is shifting us from containment to mitigation, which includes, includes social distancing to reduce transmission. So you're now seeing schools, closures, telecommunicating, don't come to work, work from your computer more and more. So when you look at uh, the World Health Organization estimation, like I said, about two, 1.4 to 2.5. Contrast that with measles, which RO value is 12 to eight, very contagious. The seasonal flu is a little bit over one, less contagious in that regards. The H1N1 swine flu pandemic in 2009 had an RO value of 1.7. It caused over 200,000 deaths in 120 countries. Uh, But that was not as severe as the flu pandemic of 1968, which was 30 times higher mortality, nor the 1918 pandemic, which was 1,000 times higher mortality rate. So you can see that the RO value for Ebola is two, swine flu was two, HIV is four, smallpox is seven, and measles is eight. So that RO number is important. We like it to be less than one. COVID spreads less efficiently than flu transmission does, but because people who spread COVID-19 for the most part are sick, unlike the flu, where it's spread when people are asymptomatic before they become sick as well as when they're sick we also don't have a vaccine for COVID-19 and we do have it for the flu which is a major hindrance and this is why COVID-19 is being driven mostly by sick people unlike the flu which is driven by sick people and those who have it asymptomatically more so. There's also concerns of super spreaders. One person may have actually infected 11 people, more than that 2.2, because they're really exuding large amounts of the virus. And if you look at how that happens, a super spreader can infect multiple secondary uh, contacts, as you can see there, and healthcare workers who then wind up spreading Uh, to tertiary third level and the red is the super spreader. COVID uh, originated we think from Wuhan, China and the majority of cases seem to be close contact with symptomatic cases. Transmission is gonna be driven in family clusters. So you're gonna get this usually in your own home and rather than at work. Second degree household attacks, someone in your house with it 10% early in the outbreak once we uh, started isolating people the attack rate was three percent as virus shedding is highest early in the disease and it can be shed and, and spread infection not as efficiently as flu 24 to 48 hours before symptom onset and virus shedding continues for 7 to 12 days in mild to moderate case and over two weeks in severe cases So how dangerous is COVID-19 compared to other viral infections? Well, if you look at the coronavirus uh, MERS, that had a 34% case fatality rate. SARS had 9.5%. And the COVID is thought to be anywhere from 0.1 to 3%. H1N1 is 0.02 and 0.4% and the H7N9 uh, avian flu was 39%. Ebola is 63% case fatality rate. So what we're seeing is um, mostly patients who come to actually be diagnosed have uh, moderate, severe, and even fatal illnesses. And the actual base of the pyramid, which is most people are either asymptomatic, never get sick, or mild illnesses, and we don't know that number, which means we miscalculate how many people are dying of this because we don't have the full numbers. So, this was a great article. Uh, Fauci was the lead arch- author, and I'll be quoting him. And you can see that um, he says that the rates were anywhere from 1.4 to 2% case fatality rate. And if you consider how many asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic people there are several times as high as the actual reported cases, you will get a number much less than 1%, okay? So once you get all these numbers, it might be as low as 0.1% case fatality rate, uh, which will be lower than SARS and MERS, which were at 10%, 36%, and some of our pandemic flus had higher case fatality rates than that so in one study they found that 2.2 percent of almost a thousand people were under 20 years of age and one recorded death so the younger you are the less likely you are to die and most patients um, who uh, did uh, get really sick were older 77.8 percent were 30 to 69 and 80% that had a case fatality rate as high as almost 15%. So the older you are, the worse it is. The younger you are, the less likely you'll have severe disease. And if you have comorbidities like heart problems, hypertension, diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, emphysema, cancer, you'll have a higher mortality. So if we think about the cases in China, when it was first starting, we were getting numbers as high as 2%, but now the epidemic has shifted outside of China, and we're seeing mortality rates at about 0.8% because we're picking up people that have more milder illnesses. And if you look at Chinese hospitalized patients, um, 80% of them had mild non-severe disease, 6% uh, 6% had severe disease or death, and 5% needed to go to the ICU, 2.3% on a ventilator, and then 1.4% died. So, if you want to know what's my risk, this is a rough number here, but if you're 80 or older, it's almost 15%. You could read uh, 70 to 88%. Zero to nine year old, um, Nobody died initially, but you'll see a few people popping up there, but the percent will be very low. And then what if you have diabetes, cardiovascular disease, respiratory cancer, 5.6%. So you could read the numbers there. So how do those who die of COVID-19 differ from survivors? Well, this Lancet article has some interesting statistics They found comparing to survivors, non-survivors, the older you were, the higher chance you would die. The more comorbidities you had, the higher the risk. Hypertension, 30%, diabetes, 19%, coronary heart disease, 8%, sicker you are with a higher SOFA score, anticoagulation problems, D-dimer levels higher, sepsis on admission and prolonged use of needing oxygen is bad signs non-survivors compared to survivors had more respiratory failure more sepsis and more secondary infections which is obvious the average survivor age was 52 and the average number of non-survivors was 69 Uh, the time of initial symptoms the median time at discharge if you survive was 22 days and from admission till death was about a median of 18.5 days Fever persisted for 12 days among all patients. Cough persisted for 19 days on average. 45% of survivors were still coughing on discharge. Shortness of breath improved after 13 days, but persisted all the way till death for those who did not survive. Viral shedding persisted a median duration of 20 days in survivors with a range of eight to 37 days covid19 was night detected in non-survivors until death and antiviral treatment did not slow down viral shedding and here is the difference between survivors and non-survivors and you can see that they um, had similar sepsis ards in the beginning but then multi-organ failure to death in the non-survivors so how does covid19 compare with the flu this year This year we'll have 26 million flu cases, 250,000 hospitalizations, 14,000 deaths, 42 per 100,000 population hospitalized. The highest rate was seen in the old over 65 at 101. And the lowest was in children, five to 17 at 17.3 per 100,000 population, and then everything in between. The CDC says the flu has caused 34 million illnesses, 350,000 hospitalization, and 20,000 deaths. Nationally, COVID in March 9th had 607 uh, cases in the U.S., 22 deaths, and worldwide at that time there was over 110,000 cases. So five to 20% of the population gets the flu every year. The flu has about 31.4 million outpatient visits each year. And of the deaths, 58% occurred, those over 65 years of age. Of those hospitalized, 70% over 65 years of age. Very similar. The cost of the flu, 10 billion direct medical expenses, lost earnings, 15 billion. Uh, Workdays lost, 17 million. 7 billion per year, sick days, lost productivity, and very high numbers, which this COVID virus will also see. Uh, 40% effective vaccine back in those years, you see quoted there, and with that, it prevented 5.3 million cases, twenty two point six million visits, 85,000 hospitalizations, and when COVID has a vaccine, we hope it'll do even better than that if it occurs every year. Are healthcare workers more likely to get the flu or COVID at work or outside work? Well, according to this recent article in uh, Infection Control Journal, you see that healthcare workers were no more likely to get the flu than working in non-healthcare worker, which means you're getting it in the community and at home primarily. Uh, If you look at COVID-19 with exposed healthcare workers, 3% of 1,200 patients, enhanced lab surveillance confirmed to have the COVID-19 infection from day one to 42. There was a significant increase in local cases that increased on days 33 to 42. Most patients came from eight family clusters. Of those 413 healthcare workers caring for the confirmed cases, 2.7% had unprotected exposure, not wearing the the mask and and the protective equipment. uh, And they had to be quarantined for 14 days. None of them were infected and there was no nosocomial transmission. So Hong Kong had no healthcare worker transmission during this study. What can generate high levels of virus for healthcare workers who could then be likely to infected? Well, number one is nebulized therapy would not be used with no done with no mask and you would be heavily protected to prevent the spread because that would generate lots of viral droplets in the air if this patient had covid19 bronchoscopies are also highly likely to demonstrate to 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 cause COVID-19 droplets and that would need to be done in a very secure area, not just a surgical mask with the most effective N95 mask and personal protective equipment. Same thing with intubating patients, generates lots of droplets and bagging people during a code situation. Of course, avoiding people that are actively coughing without a mask is a sure way to get it as well as sneezing and the six foot rule would be most important and then bodily fluids such as um, stool potentially could but normal standard and contact precautions take care of that and keep in mind your distance from the droplets versus those aerosols which are less likely to transmit so how does COVID compare with SARS and MERS Well, MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, coronavirus, that occurred uh, in the uh, Middle East, as you can see there in the United States, had two cases, so it was not efficiently spread. It will likely do very similar problems to the lung, causing the airways to fill up with inflammation and fluid and difficulty breathing with very similar scan findings. So SARS outbreak infected 8000 people in 26 countries in 2002 and 2003 and MERS infected 2500 people 27 countries since 2012 and never made it into the pandemic mode. And the big scary part is mortality, which is the sixth line down. 20, uh, 2.9%, maybe as low as 0.1% for the COVID-19, 37% MERS and 10% SARS. Symptoms somewhat similar as you can see there. So if we looked at um, how deadly is this coronavirus? Well, it's not as bad as SARS, smallpox, Ebola, bird flu, MERS, Spanish flu, upper limit, seasonal flu, lower limit, very similar. And then how contagious uh, to the right? Well, it's not as contagious as measles, chickenpox, you know, or smallpox, but it is on the high contagion level on to the right there. So unlike SARS, which causes infections deep in the lungs, pneumonia, the COVID-19 can cause the sinus, upper nasal area, as well as the pneumonia, lower respiratory, and it can cause severe pneumonia and spread easily like the flu or the common cold. Wearing a mask in public is not thought to be a good way to prevent spread because you'll be touching your face and mask multiple times, contaminating your mask, and may actually do more harm than good. Wearing a mask is good if you're around a coughing, infected person, that's when to wear a mask for sure. And most spread is not gonna occur when going to grocery stores, etc. but nevertheless, we're into limiting contact and large people in confined areas what about covid 19 and children well the JAMA article showed that in china nine infants had uh, been infected with it got it from family clusters parents etc the illness was mild and the infants all recovered nobody died however some recent article said yes infants children can have severe illness just like the flu but not to the numbers that we see with the flu, which affects them much greater. So when you look at from China, the more severe, as we say over and over again, is the older patient, especially over 80, comorbidities, less severe in the younger. Children tend to be more milder, maybe even more asymptomatic. And uh, we have, what about pregnancy? Well, they found that uh, there was no vertical transmission from mother to baby in the third trimester. And it's unclear if these people who do get COVID-19, are they going to have long-term lung problems that'll last months, years, or a lifetime? That is unknown. What are the clinical findings of COVID-19? Well, as we say, it's mostly person-to-person spread, the six feet rule. The median uh, incubation is five to six days. The range is one to 14 days. That's why we put you on incubation for 14 days if it doesn't happen you probably won't get it and if you look at the exposures that became sick uh, you can see that most of them as you're watching them during that incubation period will develop symptoms if they become sick by day 11.5 days it'll be 97.5 percent of those cases if you look at those beyond 14 days out of 10,000 known cases 101 or about 1% will become sick after the 14-day monitoring incubation period. And then, of course, if they did, they would be re-quarantined and then back to seeking medical care. So the 14-day is a very good number with a large 99% of people falling ill in that 14-day if they're going to get it. And then they can go back to normal work, taking care of patients, etc. How does it present? Mostly fever, dry cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, muscle pain, very much like the flu. You may have some diarrhea, abdominal pain, sore throat, and headache. Lymphopenia is the dominant lab finding. A coagulation problem with prolonged PT, LDH, elevation somewhat, bilateral ground glass, patchy infiltrates by chest x-ray and CAT scan. Most cases will be mild. The older patients with comorbidities are going to get more severe. If they do get hospitalized, ARDS develops in 17 to 29%, 25% require ICU care, 10% require a ventilator. What are some of the radiological findings of COVID-19 and are they different than the flu? Well, this is a nice article, New England Journal of Medicine, looking at that, and you can see this bilateral ground glass pneumonia. Another one from JAMA looked at a number of cases early on. Again, that focal ground glass was noted or diffuse ground glass, depending on the severity. Another JAMA article, again, more severe cases. And that's what ground glass would look like on a CAT scan. This was an important um, article from Radiology with some interesting nuances and specifics. So they looked at 21 patients and they found that they had ground glass in 57% more than two lobes. Rounded ground glass was interesting in a third. Uh, Peripheral distribution was interesting also in a third and crazy paving in about 20%. If the infiltrate is cavitating or nodules that are dense or pleural effusions or lymphadenopathy, it's probably not COVID-19. And of course, you may have a normal CAT scan because it's mostly bronchitis upper respiratory. So these are examples with the arrows of the peripheral ground glass as opposed to near the central area. Perfect example of peripheral ground glass distribution. That's what crazy paving would look like, a form of ground glass with interstitial prominence. There's that circular focal ground glass, which is pretty interesting and not commonly seen. Uh, There's a nice example of focal ground glass, peripheral based. Compared to SARS and MERS, could you really tell them apart? Probably not as well as other viruses, but these might give you subtle clues to lean in one direction or the other. What about for pathologists? What will you see if you get a lung biopsy with COVID-19? Well, this is a good article from Journal of Thoracic Oncology and the typical CAT scans were found. And so here's, we're gonna look at these uh, in one patient who had a lung biopsy. We'll look at four slides. One is the proteanaceous exudate filling the alveoli. Two is protein globules where the O shows. Three is intraalveolar fibrin with inflammatory cells and maybe multinucleated giant cells. Four is hyperplastic pneumocytes, and you may even see viral inclusions with the arrow there. A second patient, four slides. Again, you could see the proteinaceous fibrin in the alveoli. You can see the alveolar wall is thickened. There's fibroblastic proliferation and the hyperplasia of type two pneumocytes and diffuse alveolar damage pattern, which you can also see with adult respiratory distress syndrome. Plugging of proliferative fibroblast balls in the interstitium is a concern because will you develop a significant scarring of your lungs with recovery? uh macrophage infiltrating air spaces with type 2 pneumocyte hyperplasia what about covid19 and cancer patients well there's this lancet article that looked at cancer patients and after looking at uh, about 18 cases they found compared to non-cancer patients uh cancer patients tend to have a more severe illness, require the ventilator and ICU care more so than non-cancer patients. You can see the uh, survivor graph here in severity actually, and uh, those with cancer uh, did worse. Uh, Lung cancer was most common, uh, five of the 18, possibly because of a lot of smoking in China compared to other countries. Four of the 16 with cancer received chemo surgery in the past month, and of the cancer survivors, um, some of them were within a month of surgical resection. Compared with patients without cancer, cancer patients were older, 63 versus 48, more likely to have smoking, as you can see, 22 versus 7%. Uh, Panting or polypnea was 47% versus 23%. More severe baseline CAT scan and no significant differences, sex baseline symptoms, comorbidities, baseline severities. Overall, we know that men tend to have a higher mortality than women. So they recommended three major strategies dealing with cancer patient during the COVID crisis is number one, Consider postponing adjuvant chemo or elective surgery in stable cancer patients when the uh, area slows down in transmission of cases and less likely to get infected. Uh, Make sure they have very strong personal protective equipment to, to prevent spread and more intensive surveillance and treatment Uh, is important, especially for cancer patients. And those that are older and with comorbidities need extra protection. And remember those in nursing home, rehab facilities, more older people, more likely to get severe illness. You have to be stricter with uh, confining visitors and not allowing sick people to work or visit. Uh, What happened to cancer patients in Italy where the epidemic is raging very high? Well, uh, this Italian physician oncologist was asked this question, and what was it like in Italy? He says it's like being in a war under a terrorist attack. They had at that time 877 patients. About 10% were either in the ICU requiring ventilators. The 5,000, uh, though, had mild symptoms, and those who tested positive. In China, he said about 5% had cancer and they had a very high fatality rate. He says um, the leukemia in the bone marrow patients as we would expect would be more sicker and more of a concern with coronavirus just like they are for other viruses spread respiratory wise. He did not have a number of how many cancer patients to non-cancer patients and how they did for Italy. What about COVID-19 in bone marrow transplant patients? Well, we have no idea what's going to happen and how severe, but if you look at coronavirus from this article and Clinical Infects disease, that is not the COVID-19. It can be quite severe, even uh, the non-COVID-19 regular cold coronavirus and allogeneic stem cell transplant but a lot of times what happens is not only are they sick with uh, pneumonias they also get co-infections that increase their morbidity mortality including pseudomonas staph aureus aspergillus those kind of infections and even cmv human uh, metapneumovirus, rsv and even rhinovirus co-infection So how are severe cases of COVID defined? 19, severe cases of tachypnea, more than 30, oxygen saturation less than 93% at rest, and the PO2, FiO2 less than 300, Uh, respiratory failure requiring a ventilator, shock, organ failure in the needing ICU care, a quarter of severe critical cases require the ventilator and 75% will require just oxygen supplementation. How do you diagnose COVID-19? Well, uh, you have to do a nasopharynx swab, use viral media, run it through a machine like we do for the regular viruses that pick up three different coronaviruses but not the COVID-19. So we could rule out all of these causes within an hour of uh, the illness in the nasopharynx swab and you do an oral or throat swab. So what's the best yield in this study? Found 93% yield. The best is the bronchoalveolar lavage, 72% sputum, 63% the nasal pharynx swab. A bronch brush biopsy, 46%, pharyngeal swabs, 32%, stool, 29%, blood, 1%, and urine, 0%. So uh, the bronch, of course, is going to generate uh more droplets and uh would be minimized unless absolutely necessary but gives you the best diagnostic yield and then of course you know the criteria of when to test has changed over time and uh, this is released by the cdc and health departments and as we change we're getting more and more types of people to test that aren't just severe on the ventilator but getting more into the mild category and you can see for florida here that they prefer only minimal cases that meet public health concerns to go through the health department but outside labs are now ramping up where testing is going to drastically increase even for milder cases so you make a diagnosis by doing that nasopharynx swab the oral swab if possible sputum bronchoscopy trache aspirates, aspirates and send it to the qualified lab and then of course you have to fill out this form if it goes to the health department because we're tracking cases that are people under investigation uh, when the test is ordered and then The labs such as Quest and LabCorp and ARUP will have their own forms to fill out. So if you look at our problem in the United States is despite our large population, we have been uh, very slow in getting tests out to physicians and testing mild disease to know where we're at. On the other spectrum is South Korea, which has done massive testing, and they're very well aware of their numbers. Uh, because they've done a lot of testing, we're able to ramp up very fast. And then you have all the countries in between who are ramping up testing as well. What's the treatment of COVID-19? Well, everything from people trying vitamin C, stem cells, steroid, colloidal silver, no evidence of any of that working. Uh, antivirals against the flu, HIV may have some hope especially the combination of lopinavir, retinavir, or Kaletra. Do you have extracorporeal membrane oxygenation if you get really sick? And even the anti-malaria drug and the rheumatoid arthritis drug hydroxychloroquine. And we don't have an animal model. So that's hindering some of these uh, tests right now to test it on animals. So right now, the popular drug is the calitra drug, and it is found to interfere with the enzymes needed to infect cells called proteases. You usually use it in combination with other antivirals to treat SARS and MERS, and people feel the same with COVID-19. However, the uh, early anti-corona effect is found maybe early in treatment, whereas once they're very sick, it's less likely to work and also avoiding steroids may be important glucocorticoid consumption. Excitingly remdesivir use for Ebola seems to also have COVID-19 activity and it's now in study as we speak as compassionate use as well as enrolling in studies and it works against SARS and MERS and test tubes and animals. One gentleman who was infected in Washington got remdesivir and he reports that By day eight, he improved, he stopped using oxygen shortly thereafter, and signs of pneumonia are gone, and appetite came back. Whether it was from the drug or not, it's one case, and it was published in New England Journal of Medicine. Blood donors who survive can then uh, donate their blood, and then their serum can be... um, Used with their immune globulins being hyperimmune globulin because it's revved up against the COVID 19. And using that has worked in other pandemics and may work again in these cases, getting that hyperimmune globulin. These are all the mechanisms of where COVID 19 may be attacked with different medications, including the protease inhibitors, fusion inhibitors, etc. Now, in the MERS, ribavirin was looked at as well as alpha interferon. People are now looking at beta interferon, which both have antiviral activity. Ribavirin is used for the flu and metanumavirus and hepatitis C. And then the big thing is avoid steroids. If you have to use them, use them short course, three to five days, one to two milligrams per kilogram per day. Antibiotics, if indicated, and de-escalate once cultures and improvement occurs uh, as, as possible. Uh, giving people with low immune globulin, less than 400 IVIG may be indicated. Combinations include Kaletra, Ribavirin, Hydroxychloroquine, Remdesivir, you have to use it as monotherapy to see if it works, in uh, compassion emergency use. Here's an example of uh, activity Remdesivir with chloroquine working in vitro against COVID-19. Uh, now, once you develop full-blown sickness and you're in what's called cytokine release syndrome, ARDS, severe pneumonia, will you uh, benefit from tocilizumab actimera, which is used for rheumatoid arthritis, CRS for CAR-T treatment? It doesn't kill the virus, but it decreases interleukin-6, the pro-inflammatory cytokine that causes cytokine release syndrome. So that's another possibility, and you would have to measure IL-6 levels beforehand. What about prevention of COVID-19? Well, we're now into the social distancing, community containment now, mitigating the spread. Since community spread is here, quarantining those Uh, exposed or infected and isolation is increasing. So isolation, quarantine, community containment, these are the definitions, the challenges, the settings and the remarks. Now the vaccine uh, is key and uh, Dr. Fauci mentions two months for COVID to sequence the virus and start doing human trials of vaccine is astronomical. SARS took us 20 months. H5, N1 took us 11 months, H1N1 four months, Zika 3.5 months. However, the whole process to have an actual vaccine ready to roll is going to be likely a year to a year and a half. The NAID Vaccine Research uh, Center in Moderna Therapeutics is doing a messenger RNA vaccine candidate and they're working on that. There's also a chimpanzee adenovector candidate being worked on from the Baylor College Group in Oxford and Rocky Mountain Labs, recombinant spike vaccines and nucleic acid vaccine pl- platforms. A potential role for statins is being thought about. We know for influenza, it seems to um, cause severe cytokine increase that are inflammatory, such as IL-6, Statins actually modulate those down and they're anti-inflammatory. They're being considered when pandemic flu is around for treatment, prophylaxis, they're inexpensive, widely distributed, and they claim like the flu might be the only agent that could alter the course of the epidemic. Probably not, but probably if you're on a statin, you may have a less severe illness, but that remains unknown. We will find out in the future. Travel bans, are those important? Dr. Fauci says, if you look at the numbers, it's very clear 70% of new infections in the world coming from Europe, seeding other countries. 35 or more states have infections. 30 of them most recently got them from travel related case from that region of Europe. So it was pretty compelling. We need to turn off the source of that region. What are the challenges with COVID-19? We don't have an animal reservoir to cull the herd. Unfortunately, that's not going to help. Community spread by asymptomatic carriers quarantines or confounds quarantine and contact tracing. There's multiple strains of COVID-19, so you may have a tough time having a vaccine covering all the strains. Also, nursing home and skilled nursing facilities will refuse to accept a transfer from a hospital who are overburdened unless you can prove that a swab is negative for COVID-19 which could take weeks or more because they could be shedding it even after recovery. COVID-19 patients are cleared of isolation once they have two consecutive uh, tests collected more than 24 hours apart. What is my prediction of the outcome of COVID-19 pandemic? My prediction is you choose what the outcome is. If you wanna win through this, think of bipartisan unity, The media needs to report and sacrifice is the key, help each other out, giving all you can to help others, show love to one another and not disrespect or shunning people, and God is important to pray to and ask for help in this epidemic as well as depending on others supporting one another. If you choose to lose with this epidemic, you're going to use it politically as a weapon. If you are a media person and you have an agenda, that is not going to be a winning uh, hand. If you're selfish, if you're hoarding, if you price gouge, if you're promoting fear or fearful yourself, or if you have me, myself, and I attitude, you will lose. So the choice is ours to make, and so I think we know what we need to do, and let's defeat this pandemic, get over it, and back to our normal lives. Thank you for listening to my presentation.